Psalm 122 starts with the song of ascent of David, King David. He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Is anyone else glad this morning to be here? Yeah. I'm glad to be here, yeah. I'm also glad that we have coffee again. If you haven't noticed, it's out there. I'm excited about that. Feels like it's a little bit of normalcy, right? I love it. So as Steve said, my name is John Clements. Um, I think many of you probably know me by now, know our family. We've been here for a few years. Uh, if I look really familiar and you can't quite picture why, I sometimes play guitar up here. You might have noticed me uh, up there doing that. And as Steve has mentioned, uh, we do believe that God has put a call of ministry on our lives, and we're seeking to follow him in that, and we'll uh, do to go where he would lead. So we're looking to plant Northwind Community Church here in the next year. That's our goal. And I want to give you a quick rundown of what the next three weeks are going to look like. Um, we are going to take a look at the first couple of chapters of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, as it turns out, there are a lot of parallels between, he, between his story and what he was dealing with and where we find ourselves today with respect to uh, the American church and even our local church. So this week and next, though, we're going to do a little bit of, of, of foundational work, a little bit of homework. We're going to kind of establish the theological reasons behind why we want to plant a church, what's going on there. And then in the third week, you can kind of prepare yourselves. Yes, there will be a little bit of a pitch, so just give you plenty of advance notice on that. <laughs> there will be a pitch, but we won't get to that yet. In the meantime, uh, as you're listening this next couple weeks, uh, today, uh, next Sunday, Sunday after that, if you want to get more involved, and it can be as simple as joining our prayer list, and if you take one thing away today, I would ask, join the prayer list. Prayer is vitally important. We're going to talk about that today. If you want to get more information, though, you can um, sign up for the prayer list. You can sign up to get a little more contact from me. You can actually watch a recording of our informational session we had a few weeks ago. You can do that at inview.org slash northwind. That's where you're going to go to get all that information. All right, so we are going to spend the next couple weeks in the first couple chapters of Nehemiah. So before we get there, though, it's always good to kind of to orient yourself in the text. Where are we at in the story of the Bible? So if you kind of take a look at the Old Testament at an extremely high level, like the Reader's Digest version, uh, you know that at the, basically God chose Israel to be his people, uh, and he would use his people. He chose them, and he would use them throughout the story. He took Israel. Uh, he led them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And if you um, have read your Bible, you know that is like the seminal event in the Old Testament, the Exodus. So God takes the Israelites out of Egypt in the Exodus. They spend 40 years in the desert, uh, then, and then they begin to occupy the Promised Land. They begin to occupy the land of Canaan, which would eventually become the state or the nation of Israel. And as you know, there's a lot of ups and downs, uh, but eventually God raises up the King David, right, to rule over this unified kingdom. And that's really the high point of the Old Testament history is the King David. After David... The kingdom starts to fall apart. The people turn their backs on God more and more. The kingdom becomes divided into the, uh, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Eventually, Israel in the north uh, falls. It's, it's invaded. Conquerors come in. The, the ten tribes that were in the north are scattered to the winds, never to be seen again. They're lost. Judah in the south, which is where Jerusalem is, uh, continues on for a little while, but then it too gets invaded, 
and the people there are sent into exile in Babylon. And as a part of this invasion, um, Jerusalem is destroyed and just is just left a, a wasteland. So now this is the part of the story where uh, Ezra and Nehemiah come in. They're in Babylon, in exile, and they are uh, aware of J Jerusalem and, and what's going on there. So the temple in particular had been laid waste, and so in 515 B.C., uh, a group of people went back to rebuild the temple. Then, about 70 years later, in 458 B.C., Ezra comes along, and he reestablishes the Torah, the law, in Jerusalem. So now you have the temple restored, you have the law back in the place, but it's not done yet. The whole city of Jerusalem had fallen into disrepair, uh, and this is where Nehemiah comes in. And as Nehemiah's reaction to Jerusalem being uh, just devastated uh, in 445 B.C., and that's really where we're going to spend our time in the next three weeks. So if you have your Bibles, you can open it to Nehemiah. If uh, you don't, it will be on the screen as well. And we are just going to start at the beginning. So Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Okay, so the story of Nehemiah begins with Nehemiah in the city of Susa. This is the capital city of Babylon. And he's living there in exile, and he has some family members come to meet him. And they start talking, and he naturally asks them about what's going on back in Jerusalem, back in the homeland. And his relative, Hanani, gives a, a really bleak report about what's going on. He tells them, well, the remnant that remains after the exile... Uh, they're experiencing considerable adversity and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem lies breached, and its gates have been burned down. So in other words, the people are just in great peril. They're not doing well, and the city itself is lying in ruins. So Nehemiah learns this. He learns that Jerusalem is not doing well. Now think about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of David, right? Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem is where God manifests his presence. Like, that's the center of, of the Israelite religion. It's in Jerusalem. And its walls are in shambles, and the gates have been burned down. Now, you have to remember, at that time, walls are protection, right? Walls keep you safe. Additionally, walls were a source of identity and pride as well. So Nehemiah hears this report that the walls of Jerusalem are broken and the people there are in trouble. They're living with a sense of shame. Uh, and Nehemiah, of course, is just distraught at this news. He immediately begins to weep and to mourn for the city. And the text tells us he mourned for several days and then, and then he continued to fast and to pray. So Nehemiah's heart was just broken for Jerusalem. Again, this is the city of David, right? This, uh, the greatest king. 
This is where God's temple was located. This is where God was, was Jerusalem. In fact, there are entire psalms in the Bible that are about the city of Jerusalem. I read Psalm 122. That's one of them, right? That's where you find the verse, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So this is, again, a big deal. And it's not okay that Jerusalem is lying in ruins, and Nehemiah takes this to heart. So now I want to pause here in the story and ask a question. And I want to say, what are the parallels that we see when we look out at our society today that, we, that Nehemiah would share? So Nehemiah was hearing these reports about the tenuous state of affairs in Jerusalem, and it troubled him greatly. And so this morning, I want to spend some time discussing these parallels that are in our own society, in our own church, and see what we can learn from them. And I would maintain that we need to address these issues, and we need to start thinking and praying and acting about this if we want to continue to reach the community for the gospel. So let me show you what I mean. So let's start by talking about the American church today. Uh, So in the past year or two, the Barner group has done a lot of research into the state of the church. They always do, but they've uh, done some special research in this past year. And they found a couple things. The first thing that they researched was the current perceptions of the church and the broader communities they serve. And so they found some interesting things. They found out that practicing Christians, which is many of us in the room today, We think that Christian churches have a strong community impact. We think we're doing all kinds of things. But the rest of the U.S. population doesn't necessarily agree. In fact, only about a quarter of those surveyed agree that churches have a very positive impact in our culture. And another 25% say it has no impact at all. And Barna actually found that only 38% of U.S. adults say that the church even has a somewhat positive impact. And non-Christians specifically are, in, are inclined toward indifference or just actually see the church as harmful. Barna also found in their research that church membership is, is still common, it still happens, but its importance is declining and especially declining among the younger generation. So boomers are more likely than both Gen X and millennials to become members of a church And for many younger generations of church attenders, membership isn't isn't even a part of their church's nomenclature. Uh, That that is to say, like, they couldn't even join their church if they wanted to. There's no mechanism to do it. They don't operate like that. And one researcher commented about this. He said, Americans aren't joining much of anything these days, and church membership is not as compelling as it once was. Let's look at the third piece of research that Barnett conducted in 2020, and this one's related to COVID. And they predicted that based on their research, as many as one in five churches could end up closing because of this pandemic. That's 20%, might just not be there anymore. And I hope that they're wrong, but I'm, I'm afraid they might be right. And they also found that nearly two thirds of all churches have experienced a drop in giving due to COVID. I think we are definitely an outlier in that category, and I'm very thankful for that. So the church in America is struggling right now, like like pretty much every other organization is. There's these massive rifts and shifts in our culture, the pandemic, uh, the division, you name it, and, and we're having a hard time keeping up. So that's a little bit about the American church. Now I want to talk specifically about where we live in Bothell and Mill Creek. 
and this is uh, this was eye-opening to me when I first researched this. And he, so here's some stats that I found. So 70,000 people live in Bothell and Mill Creek in, in those zip codes, and more move here every day. And if you're like me, and if you drive around or go to the store or, or wherever you go, you, what do you see? You see new buildings being built. You see new apartment complexes going up. You see new houses being built all over the place. People are moving here in droves. So 70,000, you know, is going to become 80,000, 90,000, 100,000 in the not-too-distant future. So people are just flooding into the area. The next point is that there are fewer than 50 churches here. I uh, did a little digging. Um, I looked on churchfinder.com, and again, for those zip codes or those towns, Botham, Mill Creek, I found 44 churches. So let me just assume that I missed some. I'm going to round up to 50 uh, just to make some easier math. And if you do the math, those really aren't very good odds. Basically, if all the churches in town banded together to reach everyone with the gospel, every church would have to reach about 1,600 people. That's a lot. That's a very tall order. That ratio is very low, and what that does is it makes it very difficult to try to impact our community with the gospel. And then we have to think about that number 50, though, and we have to remember something. We have to ask ourselves, how many of those 50 churches are healthy churches? How many are trying to reach their communities? And how many are maybe dead or dying churches? Or how many of them really aren't focused on the gospel? And, and I'm not up here to, to, to start judging churches. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying that we know from experience, we know from statistics, that not every church is, uh, is healthy, and that's an unfortunate reality. So what we end up doing is we end up fighting this uphill battle. We have more and more people coming into our local community every day, and we really don't have enough churches to meet that need. And this is really one of the reasons that we want to plant locally. A lot of times you think about church planters, and they're going to go move to a different state or a different country, and they're going to go plant a church. But guys, the need is right here. We need more churches right here in Bothell and Mill Creek. In fact, it's not just me saying this. Uh, church planting expert C. Peter Wagner has a book called Church Planting for a Greater Harvest. And here's what he says. He says, One common barrier to new church planting is the notion that this area is already overchurched. But most such evaluations are off-target. And this is the kicker. He says, I doubt if a single urban area in the United States is adequately churched. Now, I don't want to suggest at this point that it's all doom and gloom, that the church is going to die. I don't believe that at all. But I do want to point out that there's some uncomfortable facts that we really need to wrestle with and, and decide what we're going to do about. We have real hurdles to overcome as a church, both nationally and locally, and what I'm telling you is that church planning is, is a part of the strategy that, the, that denominations, including our own, have to, to battle against these issues. So this actually raises a good question that I want to talk about a little bit more detail. It's maybe one you may, may not think of just right away, but uh, I want to ask the question, why do we even care? Why do we even care about the church at all? Why do, why do those numbers you know, make us feel like there's an issue? Or to ask it in another way, what is it about the church that's worth fighting for? 
And it turns out that this is actually a theological question, and, and how you view the church theologically in turn impacts how, how you act towards it, uh, what you believe about it, and how you approach it, and whether you think it's important or not. So I want to talk about it a little bit, because it's important to get that theological ba- uh, foundation going. So there's a lot of different views in our culture today about what the church is there to do, and there's a lot of different views about how to interact with the church. And I'm going to go over four of them as kind of an example of, wo- of, of the views that are out there. And then I'm going to talk about uh, those in turn. So the first view, some people think that the church is like a gas station. What do I mean by that? Well, it's, that's easy. You, you come in on Sunday morning, your tank is empty, you leave and it's full, right? I think we've all maybe experienced that. I go to church on Sunday so I can make it through the rest of the week. Okay, that's, that's, that's some people's view. Second, some people think of the church as a movie theater. It's a place that offers entertainment. Think of the people that go to the church and they want to see the fog machines. And they want to see the professional musicians up on stage talking. They want, they want their pastor to be uh, the person who's written that New York Times bestseller list book and who never makes a stumble or says um or ah like I do. They want that professional, polished kind of church where they can be entertained. And then some people think of the church like a drugstore. It's the place where you can fill the prescription that will deal with your pain. I have pain, I come to the church, they help me with my pain, and I go away, and and I'm happy. And the fourth, some people think of the church as a big box retailer. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it's the place that offers the best products. It's a place that's clean and safe, and you can take your kids there. You can drop them off. You can not worry about it. Or maybe you have a checklist of, oh, well, the church, the perfect church does A, B, C, D, E, and as long as I check all the boxes, I know I've got a good church. Some people think this way. Now, if you look at this list, there, there's something tricky about it. And the tricky thing is, there's truth to all these things. So if I look at the first one, the church is like a gas station. I'm honest, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I come into church empty, and church fills me up. I mean, singing songs to, you know, to worship our Creator is amazing. Uh, listening to Steve preach the Word and others preach the Word, man, I, it does fill me up. And I do leave with joy and excitement, and I'm ready to tackle the week. And that's a good thing. If you think about the church like a movie theater, is church entertaining sometimes? Yeah, yeah, it's fun. I like coming here. And I'm not sure that worshiping the creator of the universe should be boring. You know, I don't think that's the way to go. Or like a drugstore, you know, the church is here to deal with your pain. Well, that is true. One of the things that Steve does really well is counsel people. And that's a, a way that he can help them with their pain. And even the last one, big box retailer. Now, I'm a parent, right? I have two kids. And it is important to me that I can take my kids someplace safe and someplace clean and someplace that you know, kind of meets the minimum requirements of what I I think they should. Like, those are all good things in and of themselves, but the problem is when you take any one of those things and you make it the main thing. And why is that a problem? Well, there's a commonality between all of these different ideas of what the church is. And the commonality is that those things are all about me. Fill me up. Entertain me. Take care of my kids. Give, we, uh, give me the programs that I want. And when you allow that view to start dominating your thoughts about the church, you become a church consumer. 
you're paying for a church product with your time and your money, and you expect a certain value from the church in return. That's where you go. But when you adopt this consumeristic mindset, what happens when the church doesn't meet your needs? What happens when things don't go the way you think they ought to go? Well, I've uh, been in church my whole life, and I've seen and experienced this. Maybe you have too. Some people try to gain power and try to force the church to go along with their plan. Um, in the church where I grew up, uh, you know, I can't think of any specific examples, but someone might be upset because of the color of the carpet, and I'm not even joking, or because we have pews instead of chairs, or stairs inst uh, chairs instead of pews. And they try to gain power and force the church to go along with their vision. Other people choose to get bitter and become disillusioned with the church. Some people start church hopping, they start church shopping, and some just give up on church altogether. Okay, so what is the antidote to this idea of the church is all about me? Well, this is one of those hard pills to swallow, but here it is. The church isn't about you. It's not about me either. <laughs> Thank God it's not about me. In fact, the gospel isn't about you. God's kingdom isn't about you, and it's not about me. And if you come to the table with this idea of what's in it for me, you're going to be disappointed. It may not happen right away, but you will eventually be disappointed. And that doesn't mean that the church can't meet your needs. I do believe it can meet your needs in many ways. But if you make church into something whose primary purpose is to meet your needs, you're going to be let down. You're going to become power-hungry or bitter or disillusioned because that's not what the church is about. Okay, so what is the church about then? If it's not about me, if it's not about you, what is it? Well, let's take a look at a couple of passages that can help us. So Paul, in the book of Ephesians, talks about the church in, in a couple places. In chapter 1, he says this, And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying the church is Christ's body. And the church belongs to Christ. Christ is the head of that body. And Christ isn't the head because we decided to make him the head, okay? He is the head because that's who he is, and he decided to make us his body. All right, think about, Steve talks a lot about that authority issue. Christ is the authority. The body serves at the direction of the head. Our calling, then, is to be responsive to him, to follow him. He's our authority because the church, the gospel, the kingdom of God, all center on the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus, and it's easy to forget that. So let's look at another passage in Ephesians in chapter 5, where Paul talks a little more about the church. He says, For no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and he takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. There's the body metaphor again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So here, Paul picks up a different metaphor to explain the church. He's talking about this relationship between husbands and wives, and how, they get, how they're supposed to get along with one another. And then in verse 32, all of a sudden he switches gears, and he starts talking about Christ and the church. So what he's doing is he's comparing the two. He's telling us that just like a husband and a wife are married, 
so too the church is married to Christ. And so this is where we get the concept that the church is Christ's bride. And what did Christ do for his bride? Well, he loved his bride. He, took, he takes care of his bride. And as, as we know, he died for his bride. So if Jesus loves the church to that extent, and if the church is really all about him, then shouldn't we respond to the church likewise? Shouldn't we love and care for and build up and sacrifice for the church since that's what Jesus does? So that's why when I see problems with the church, whether it's the American church in general or whether it's the particular church that I'm attending, um, and I know there are many. I, I hate to break it to you. We're, we're not a perfect church. And if you were perfect, you quit being perfect whenever I started coming. That's just how it is, right? <laughs> but when I see problems, I say, okay, yeah, we might have problems, but guess what? We are still the body, and we are still the bride of Christ. You wouldn't walk away from your marriage just because you discovered a problem with it. And no matter how much you might want to, you wouldn't give up on your body just because it doesn't function in quite the same way that you think it should. And so it should be with the church. When you remember that Christ loves the church and died for her, and we should love it like he did. So the church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And we need to care for it. We need to seek to build it up. We need to be brokenhearted over it, just like Nehemiah was for the city of Jerusalem. But the question is, how do we do that? What, what are the steps we can take? I want to give you three ways that we can partner with God to build the church, even this very week. So the first way that we can build up the church is to pray for the established church. Now, I know that prayer is a Sunday school answer, right? Like, oh, yeah, we should pray. Uh, we're Christians. We should pray. Got it. Cool. But I want to dig in for a minute and actually explain what it means to pray for the church. And this is something that's, uh, in our society, pretty easy to forget. But we really need to remember that the primary battle that we face as a church is spiritual. That is ground zero. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So those rulers, those authorities, those powers, those spiritual beings, they do battle against the church in the spiritual realm. And if you talk with people in our church, uh, and I've had these conversations, and we start talking, and all of a sudden you figure out like, oh, there's actual real spiritual warfare going on in our church right now. I mean, I've experienced it. I've talked to others who have. Like, it's a real thing. It's the real deal. And so what is our weapon to fight against that? It's prayer. Specific, targeted prayer. So I want to ask you, ask God to break your heart for the church this week. Ask God to help you love the church like he loves, like he loves the church. And then pray against the spiritual warfare that is ever-present in our community. And if you want any specific things to pray about, do what I do. Walk up to a staff member and go, hey, how can I pray for you this week? I bet you they'll be glad to tell you. Second, we can build up the church by praying for new churches. New churches, church plants, those are, uh, that's vital new lifeblood in, in the community of churches. It's, that we, it's things we need. Now, we'll talk specifically about Northwind in a couple of weeks, but for now, um, I hope you can start to at least see the need and the importance of why we're choosing 
to plant a new church. And we can actually support our own denomination in this regard. Um, We're a part of the Converge denomination, and you may not know this, they actually have an initiative to plant 300 new churches all across the United States in the next few years. So you can pray for that. You can financially support those churches. And again, if you want to specifically pray for what we're doing with Northwind, I would encourage you to go to inview.org slash Northwind. Sign up for that prayer list. I send about two emails a month with, prayer, with specific prayer things you can be praying for. And if you want to support Northwind financially, I would encourage you to continue giving to the Move the Mountain Fund. That's part of what that money is there for. So you can pray for the established church, you can pray for new churches, and then finally, you can do what Jesus said we should do. Well, okay, what did he say? Well, as he moved throughout Israel during his public ministry, he saw thousands of people, and this is what he thought when he saw them. In Matthew chapter 9, it says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So Jesus saw that in his day, the people were lost. They were living their lives like sheep who had no shepherd. They were just wandering about doing whatever they thought was the right thing to do. And if we're honest, it's the same for us today. Right? We've all been told in our culture to follow our heart and to live our own truth. And to be honest, that is horrible advice. Many people in our community are wandering around aimlessly with their lives, or they're following the wrong God, or maybe no God at all. Now, we'll talk a lot more about this next week. It's kind of a sneak peek into that. But when Jesus saw these people, he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to, look to the Lord to send out laborers. So my challenge to you this week is to look at the people you come in contact with and remember that many of them are lost and that they need to hear the gospel. And then pray that God would send out laborers to reach them. So at this point, you might be saying, okay, you're really hitting this idea of prayer pretty hard. Um, what about doing something? But here's the deal. Again, this, when you talk about the church and, and, and growing churches and supporting churches, planning churches, it's a spiritual battle primarily. Now, I've been in the corporate world for 15 years. I was a project manager for a couple of years. I understand all about action plans and mission statements and vision and, and all that goes into that. And those are all important things. But what was the first thing that Nehemiah did when he heard about the state of Jerusalem? He prayed. Prayer is foundational. And when we talk about reaching people for Christ, planning new churches, again, these are spiritual endeavor, uh, endeavors. They do require lots of action, but it must have a foundation of prayer. It has to start with prayer. Nehemiah knew that, and now you know that. So the church is the body and bride of Christ. And we need to care for it and seek to build it up, just like Nehemiah cared for Jerusalem and sought to build it up. And it begins with prayer. So my question, just to end, this, uh, to end this this morning, is will you join me in praying for the church this week?
So let's pray. God, we love you, we thank you, we praise you for who you are, we praise you for what you've done, uh, specifically in the form of Jesus uh, dying on the cross for our sins and raising again, because we know without that fact, none of the rest of this is possible, none of the rest of this matters. But God, my prayer this week would be that we would uh, walk out of the, of the service today with a, with a broken heart for your church, with a broken heart for the people we see around us every week, and that we would just begin to commit these things to you in prayer and that we would expectantly await you to work. God, I lift up all these things to you in your name. Amen.